Well, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, it's good to good to see you all today. We're in chapter four of First Thessalonians, and as we, uh, you know, it's hard to know how far we'll get. It's doubtful we're going to get the whole chapter done. Last week, we did something in all the Bible studies I teach. We never do that. We covered one whole chapter in a day, which is yeah. utterly unprecedented. But uh, I'm pretty sure we won't get that done today. I've been in. Uh, higher education my entire life, uh, virtually, adult life. And um, there's probably one question I've been asked uh, more than any other question. <clears throat> and it usually starts something like this. Dr. Eckman, what's God's will for me? And then, you know, it's a myriad of things. Usually it involves things like, what's God's will for me in terms of whom I should marry? You know, they've been dating some girl. Uh, it's usually guys. I, I don't usually spend any kind of counseling sessions with uh, women. I, I don't think that's wise for me to do that. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's these major issues of life. And my response is always the passage we're about to study. That 96% of God's will for your life is already revealed. Now, I pulled that statistic out of thin air. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that percentage is. But a great deal of God's will for your life is already revealed. And in the non-moral areas of life, I think God so, so much wants us to use wisdom and discretion and discernment to make wise decisions in the non-moral. Again, what I'm talking about are the areas to which he has not directly spoken. The Apostle Paul uh, talks about that in this passage. As a matter of fact, he says, and I want to do something with it, and you'll, you'll see how it's structured. But he says, the will of God for you is your sanctification. And if you've been around me, and some of you have been uh, in this study for a couple of years, that should not be a new word to you, sanctification. That should not be the first time you've ever heard that. So we're going to look at that as we examine what he's really saying here. This is a this is an eminently practical section of God's Word. But let's look at how he begins the chapter. Again, it's chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. Now, I, I have a copy of the NIV and the NASB in front of me. Uh, the NIV starts, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, New American says, Finally then, brethren, but what Paul is doing is changing to another subject. And it doesn't necessarily mean this is the last thing I'm going to talk about in this letter. But he's changing subjects. So are you with me? That's all. I just want you to observe that. We instructed you how to live or walk in order to please God, as in fact you're walking that way. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, do this more and more. Continue to do it. Excel in your walk with the Lord. Now, we've, we've learned this in the study of the, of the Thessalonian letter, that Paul thinks highly of this church. This is a church that has a really special place in his heart. And so he, in effect, is really affirming them. You're walking with the Lord? Keep walking with the Lord. Now, let's make sure we're all on the same page. When he says, walking with the Lord, what does he mean by that? Okay, 
living a life that's consistent with his teaching. Um, the word walk, I mean, it's a metaphor, obviously, figure speech. But the word walk, what's that communicating to you? Friends, companion. Friend, companion. Is it abnormal or normal? Is normal. It, it's, it's the normal. In other words, when you, when you speak about somebody walking, unless tragically or quadriplegic or something like that, walking is just a normal part of life. So Paul does this. He does this all the time in his writings. He compares our relationship with God as a walk. It's a normal, common, uh, not abnormal, not unusual characteristic of our life. We're to be walking with God. We're to be bringing our life into conformity with his standards, with his values. And you find those by being in his word. So he's saying some, he's saying some things here that are really encouraging, really infer, affirming to these people. And he says in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So he's adding, what we taught you, you took seriously, and it characterizes your walk. You would think, well, finish the letter, sign it, and send it off. But he has a lot more he wants to say to them. Verse 3 is the one I want to stop there for a minute. New International translates it, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. NASB says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So, if you ever ask your pastor or friend or me, what is God's will, I'm going to direct you to this verse. As a starter, how broad of a word is sanctification? It's a, it's a large word. It's a huge word. It's one of those terms that uh, is, is unique to Christianity. It really is. And it really does refer to that process of being conformed, kind of giving you a doctrinal way of thinking about it to the image of Christ. That's, that's kind of the operative word in the definition. It's process. It's not an event. Justification, I hope you know that word because we've talked about that a lot in this class. Justification is an event. It's that point where you, along the timeline of your life, there's a point there where you placed your faith in Christ. That's justification. Then the process of sanctification begins. So Paul is, I mean, it's, it's really, a, it's such a simple sentence, verse 3. I think it's one of the most profound sentences in the New Testament. God's will for your life is your sanctification. And it includes, there's, there's almost nothing that's excluded from sanctification. It involves how we think. It's the reprogramming, if I can use that computer term, it's the reprogramming of our mind and how we think from one worldview to the worldview that's presented in scriptures. 
It's the reprogramming of how you think about God. Before you come to know Christ, you have an image, a picture, a, a set of assumptions. Let's suppose you're an atheist, which, you know, sometimes atheists do come to Christ, but you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, and all of a sudden you've embraced him, and you've got to learn about him. What's he like? That's sanctification. Sanctification involves your emotions. Sanctification, we are emotional beings. That's how God creates it. But it's getting control of our emotions. The Bible understands we're going to be angry. The Bible understands that's how we're going to respond sometimes to events. But the Bible is going to say, be angry, but do not sin. Get control of your anger. The Bible is going to proclaim to us that you get your emotional dimension of life under control. That's sanctification. It involves your body, which is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And that means that whole that's a transformation of how you look at your body. Your body becomes extremely important. It's not just some entity that doesn't mean anything because when I die, it's going to go into the ground and become dust. No. God said, I'm going to resurrect it. It's of eternal importance to me. It's God, so therefore it's eternally important to you. So it's, it's, it's an all-encompassing term. And that verse, the will of God is your sanctification. And so it's like, that's why I, I pulled that statistic out of thin air. 96% of God's will for your life is already revealed. And this is a good place to start. I don't know if it's 96%. I don't know what it is. But I'm pretty sure it's a lot more than half. That what God is really calling us to do and what is his will for our lives is really encapsulated in that one word, sanctification. Now, did I confuse you or are you with me with that? And I want you to, you know, I've said it now twice. This is a very profound verse. And it's one we need to, it's one of those verses we need to kind of just sit and think about for a little bit and really understand what is he really saying to us here? Okay? Just so to, to follow through on the example that you gave of some guy coming to you saying, yeah. I'm dating this girl, yeah. this, how do I know God's will? So would, could part of your response to that be, well, will, will pursuing this individual help you be conformed further into the image of Christ? First question, if that's really the the question, first question I said, is she a believer? Because the clarity of God's word, do not marry an unbeliever. Do not be unequally. That's clear. God's moral law is very specific there. Yes, she's a believer. Good. Okay, that's the only thing in the Bible that's restricted for you. You have total freedom and everything else. Then you have to start with a practical question. Is she going to be a help? or hindrance to your sanctification. And sometimes, well, we're opposites. That doesn't necessarily mean she's going to be be a hindrance. That could actually be a gift. That's why the Bible says to a man, you need to really understand your wife. You need to become a student of her. You need to understand her. You need to spend... That's why, you know, sometimes... This isn't typical, but often students meet... They start dating, they're engaged, and get married, and it's five months. You know, think, oh my goodness, how do you know each other? I mean, it could happen. But you know, they think, goodness. So, so it does seem as if wisdom dictates 
You really need to spend time with each other. That's wisdom to figure that out. But that's an important question. Is this going to hinder or help my sanctification? Process being conformed to the image of Christ. We don't have to run back to the Bible and say, now let's see, what, what did Christ do in that situation? Necessarily do we, Jim, and where do, what does the Holy Spirit, what role does the Holy Spirit, once we've come to, to believe in God through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, how does the Holy, what role does the Holy Spirit play in this conformity to the image? As a, just a practical matter, because this is like, well, I gotta go back and study it. So I, so I know what to do here. Oh, Fred, you're asking a huge question. I mean, it's because it's, there are just layers to that. These are helper. But yeah, I mean, there are a couple. Honestly, that's a, it's a really important question. But it's hard to answer it. In short. But I think there are a couple of things we learn. Number one is that the, the Spirit is our helper. He comes alongside. He's our counselor. He's our teacher. It's this all from John 16. And we learned in 1 Corinthians 2 that he who searches the deep things of God helps us to understand the deep things of God and respond in obedience. I think practically speaking, um, as we, as, and this is part of this process, but as he teaches us, as we study and spend more and more time in God's Word and our relationship with God deepens, our conscience is then sensitized to the things of God. You know what I mean? I mean, that conscience is a very... The Bible mentions that only 31 times, but that's a very important word in guiding and helping the believer in decision-making. Our conscience. The Holy Spirit's involved in all of that. So I think the, the the question that you ask when you're making major decisions of life, like, you know, for example, Fred, I, did you, first of all, is God interested in how you adorn your body each morning? Yes. He is. So you prayed about what you would wear this morning? Obviously you didn't, but I mean, did you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I had to say that. That's all I had to wear. I had to say that. So you, you didn't pray about it this morning? No, I didn't. Why not? If it's that important, if it's important to God. Well, I thought it was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I no, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do, and I, that's yeah, humorous, well. <laughs> but is to make a point. God trusts you so much, and I mean this. He trusts you so much to make those kinds of decisions. You, you decide. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you should dress. Now, if you're in the Old Testament, there are certain kosher laws that are important, but it, says you, it doesn't matter how you dress. In terms of God, and you, you dress in a, in a way that's you know relatively modest, not to draw attention to yourself, but that's kind of the general thing. Do um, you go into a parking, uh, go into a car lot to buy a car, and say, "Okay, Lord, which one of these cars is for me? Show me." You know, some people do that, but I always I struggle a little bit because how does God show you? Instead, I think because that's a non-moral decision. I think God instead is saying. I've given you a mind. I've given you wisdom. You're wise and frugal with your finances. You have the freedom to choose. You really do. And so those kinds of things, but in areas that are have a moral or ethical uh, dimension to them, the first question you should ask is, has God spoken 
on this issue. And the only way you're going to find that is by looking at his word. Um, so, anyway, I mean, th this issue of the will of God, there's a, there's a somewhat of a mystery to it, but I, I don't think there should be that much of a mystery to it. As a matter of fact, the Bible really speaks of, now, sometimes it uses these words, sometimes it doesn't. But the Bible really speaks of three dimensions of God's will. God's sovereign will, God's moral will, um, and God's specific will in non- moral area. Alright, you know what? The three aspects of God. God's sovereign will. What's the word sovereign mean? Uncontestable. Okay, uncontestable. <laughs> By itself. By itself. He rules. He's in control. His providence is real. What is the only acceptable response to God's sovereign will? Submission to it. And sometimes we don't know what God's sovereign will is until events occur. Because you don't, you, I don't think for the most part we can have 100% certainty beforehand what God's sovereign will is in, in non-moral order. I don't think we can say that. What's God's moral will? Do the right things. Yeah, the things that are clearly revealed in his will, and that's part of what Paul's going to address here in chapter 4, what's the only acceptable response to God's moral will? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question. What's the only acceptable response to God's moral will? Obedience. You don't pray about it. Lord, should I lie about this? Lord, I'm, I'm wrestling in prayer now. Should I... Should I misrepresent the truth? And no, you should not lie, period. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to agonize on it. You just obey it. Lord, I'm really attracted to this woman who's not my wife. Should I have a sexual relationship with her? What's God's? You don't have to wrestle through that. Don't seek counsel on that. Don't go to a counselor and pay $100 an hour. Just obey. No. Amen. I'm sorry, I'm preaching now, so I'm getting <laughs> So... God's sovereign will we submit, God's moral will we obey. Now both of the I'm not saying this is easy, but this is this is what the scriptures lay out for us, because He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And He loves us. He sent His Son to die for us, the ultimate demonstration of care. So in these non-moral areas, what, what does that phrase mean, non-moral areas of life? Give me some examples of non-moral errors of life. How Fred should dress. Yeah, how Fred should dress. That's a non-moral <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I didn't mean to embarrass Fred, but it, it got your attention as to the point. <laughs> you did. Okay. I didn't, he did. But what would be other examples of non-moral errors of life? The car. Yeah, yeah okay. buying a car, that's not a moral issue. The Bible doesn't address buying an automobile. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Fiscal policy as opposed to social policy. Okay. <laughs> Possibly. How about entertainment choices? To a degree, yes. Movies we go to. How, to, how about the books you read? Yeah, to a degree, yes. Uh, should I? You know, I remember one time my mother called some me. Some of those are moral too. Pardon me. Well, that's why. That's why I said just some, because it, other things kick in there with some of that. Uh, leisure time activities. Where should we go on a vacation? Um, you know, I remember I had one one of our students. This goes back, oh goodness, twelve, thirteen years ago. One of our students, her mother called me because I had done something on my radio program. She said, should I let my little girl buy Pokemon cards? I'm not going to answer that question. Because I don't think it's necessarily a sin to have Pokemon cards. You have to decide that as a parent. You have to understand your child and so on. You know, should I let my son read Harry Potter? parent asked me that. My responsibility is not to tell you what books to read. That's not my responsibility. I'm not going to bind your conscience with the convictions I have in that area. But I do think you should develop those convictions. You should develop them. Because five years from now, you're going to call me up and get, give me another list of books that, that I should be reading? No, that's legalism. That's Binding others' consciences with... So the non-moral areas of life are just that. They're non-moral. God has not directly spoken to them, and we don't have specific principles from God's Word on this. So God trusts us and says, I trust you. I've given you a mind. Your mind is being conformed to the image of my Son. I'm reconstructing your worldview. I'm, I'm wanting you to get control of your emotions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I trust you to choose wisely. And the words like wisdom and discernment and discretion and prudence, those wisdom words in the Old Testament. So what Paul is talking about, what Paul is talking about here in his section of 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it is sanctification in the moral areas of life. He's not talking about non-moral areas. He's talking about moral areas. Your, the will of God for your life is sanctification. In, and he's very specific. He has three areas in mind. Just to go back on these non-moral issues. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're considering a job change or a career change. And not like not considering going to work for Satan, but you know, sure. so, whatever. So, I mean, is it how do you seek the will of God in those situations? Well, um, again, like you said, assuming there's no ethical right. issue involved, do you seek counsel? Yes. You find out all about the position, the company, the people. That yes. You pray about it. Yes. You read God's word. Yes. Um, yet ultimately, in a situation like that, Joel, 
Now, my view of decision-making may be a little different uh, than, than some, but I, my view is what is sometimes called the wisdom way, that I think God trusts us enough in areas like that because of how he is equipping us to use wisdom to make a decision. We are accountable for that decision. And he gives us the freedom. Now, as we, um, as we make a decision like that, we are then trusting his sovereign will. You know what I mean? When we submit to that in event, because it may not work out, that that may or may not have anything to do with the decision itself, the way you made the decision, or anything. I had a, a very, very close friend of mine when I started teaching here when, after we came to Omaha, and he was just, he was really close to me. And we lived close to get, get, so we always drove in in the morning together. And he had an opportunity to take an administrative position at a school in California, and he left. And he and I um, kind of had the same view of this, uh, the, how you make a decision and so on. And so um, when it came time for him to move, the truck he ordered, what showed up was a smaller truck. So he didn't have enough, it wasn't enough room on the truck to take all the things. So a lot of people were helping him. So he said, load this truck, we'll get another one, we'll load the rest of it and have somebody drive it out for you. They get to Denver, their first stop, the car blows up. I mean, it's just a whole series of real serious issues. And some people would say, ah, he made the wrong decision. He stepped outside of God's will. I'm, I don't think that's the way to look at that. They were just the common, ordinary things that happen in life that God can use to build our faith. Are you trusting me, your car below? Are you trusting me I'm going to take care of you? Or is that a sign you should go back to Omaha? No. It's too late to go back to Omaha. I guess, I guess he could have gone back to Omaha. But, and then he had, he just died here uh, last year, but he had a very, very fruitful and fulfilling ministry out there. He did a lot of things at that school in Fresno. Just really, really had a major impact on that school. But, you know, these were things that were tests that God let him go through. So it depends on how you look at those things. Uh, so anyway, let's get back to the text here because he and we do not exactly know why he brings these up. We do know, and we've talked about this. Thessalonica was a very pagan city, grossly immoral, corruption. Uh, the the temp, the um, Greco-Roman temples that were there and all of that. So it may have something to do with that. They're living in this cesspool. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Okay, that's the first thing. It's an example. He could have, there, there are zillions of examples he could use, but for some reason he chooses that one. And the, the actual word he uses there, I suspect you'll recognize this, is porneia. What word do we get from that? Pornography. Pornography. So it's a very broad, general word. There's nothing specific about it. It's a very broad, general word for sexual immorality. So it could be all kinds of things. He's just saying. And in, <coughs> excuse me, in a pagan city like Thessalonica, that's a serious issue, serious challenge for them. 
avoid porneia. Stay away from it. Flee from it. Okay, that really meant something to them. I suspect in 21st century urban America, that has a lot of meaning. As a matter of fact, because the internet, and no matter where you live in the United States, that has, that has meaning. Stay away from it. Avoid it. And that's just, it's a simple, that's part of your sanctification. It's God's will for your life. That aspect of sanctification. And second, he says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust, like the pagans do, who do not know God. So you could say the first one is negative, avoid porneia. The second one is, in a sense, positive, exercise self-control. If you want to distill it down into a simple phrase, exercise self-control. Now listen, as I've said now, I think this is the third time I've said it this morning, just like the pagans, the, the literal word is the Gentiles, meaning those who are around you there in Thessalonica, they are not exercising self-control. Those pagan temples, the one to Aphrodite, was wanton, base worship of pagan god that involved a lot of sexual immorality. Did they exhibit self-control? No, they exhibit just the opposite. Absolute license. Do whatever you want. And Paul is saying, remember, the will of God is your sanctification. And one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is a goal of sanctification, is self-control. So exercise self-control in this area of life. Self-control is one of the marks of maturity. May I make that statement again? Self-control is one of the marks of maturity. It really is. And self-control is a broad word. I mean, it can involve all kinds of things in our culture. Self-control involves what you eat, what you drink, how much time you spend at the computer? How much time you spend watching television? How much time you play spending uh, time you play spending uh, and playing uh, video games or messing with this stupid thing? Or, I mean, all the things that are just that can actually control us. Because Paul says this is another passage of scripture: "I will exercise my freedom in all of these areas of life, but I." will not be mastered by anything. Because if you don't exercise self-control, it will control you. Even things that are morally and ethically neutral, like a video game, I mean, assuming it isn't grossly immoral, grossly immoral or something, there's nothing wrong with a video game per se. You know, Watching, again, depending on television, probably, but watching, not only that per se, but watching it 23 and a half hours a day, you know, it's out of control. 
So Paul is just saying, in the, in the cesspool in which you live, exercise control over your body. Self-control. And you know, it, it's, it, uh, there's several hands I'll get to. Just let me make one further comment. If you go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the ninth of nine, the ninth fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It is impossible, and this is a bold statement, but it is impossible to exercise self-control in its fullness without the Spirit. Tom? Oh, I was I was just thinking about David in the Old Testament, you know. He got off base there for a little while, you know, and he came back and no one forgave him, but, you know, just to see how things can happen. And that was a guy who was... Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. He was, you know, as he was as a boy, fighting Goliath, you know, he was a, he battled along to the Lord, he really had to walk with God, you know, but he, I was going over some of those passages, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he made just a series of steps um, that got him into terrible trouble. He came back to the Lord, restored the fellowship of the Lord, but the consequences were devastating in his family. Mm-hmm. Fred, you were going to... Um, I was just thinking, um, because we have uh, immorality around us, uh, and if we face an immoral situation, and we can choose to go toward it or away from it, those decisions to go away from it, how does that impact our life for the future so that we, and, and could you answer that maybe using your own life uh, as an example of how you have been strengthened by moving away from it rather than toward it? Do you get uh, what, what develops over a period of time and how have you seen that? Uh, in your own life? Well, um, I, I think as you choose to, and the illustration that Paul is using here, he's dealing with what, <coughs> excuse me, a Thessalonian believer would have faced every single day in Thessalonica. No matter, how, no matter where they were in the city, this is what they would have faced. And they would have had to have almost daily chosen to, as uh, the Apostle Paul says in the first uh, uh, letter to the Corinthians, flee immorality. And I think as one makes that decision, that choice to flee, and again, in dependence on, on the Lord, in dependence on the Spirit, your your faith, but also your, your self-control, and your, your capacity to exercise self-control is strengthened in that, Fred. And I, you know, it's it, part of that process. You, you, must, uh, you must learn, you must learn the warning signs in your life that uh, demonstrate to you it is time for me to turn my back and head in the other direction. Whatever the specifics are. I told you, I think it was last week, I seem to remember writing on the board, 
Now, James says this in his first uh, chapter of his epistles. Sin begins with a thought, leads to a desire, and produces an action. We must learn the warning signs in our thought life. We must learn that. That's our responsibility. Now, God is there to help us. God will do everything he can. But we must make that decision. Self-control is you and I exercising that independence upon God's spirit. And I think learning the warning signs in our own life, what is a, what is a difficult thing for you to handle, Joel, may, it, he may get no response to it. It may not affect him. And it, there's nothing that's evil about you and righteous about him. It's just the way he is. But for you, that's just an issue. You must, that warning you take that very seriously. And you just, you flee. You just walk the other way. You turn it off. You get something else to do. I mean, uh, I'm just using crazy examples. But you must learn. And the, when you learn that, you learn those, those, those protective hedges that you're building around your life. That's what you're doing. You're building a series of protective hedges around your life. Um, Jerry Jenkins called them the hedge builders. And the, you, you have to learn what they are. And that's part of our growth. That's part of the sanctification process that uh, we, you know, for, uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, we studied that before. You work out your sanctification because God's at work within you. But you make those decisions. I like uh, I like the way you said it last week. Uh, you talked about developing a strategy yep. to avoid the thought or the temptation. Yes. And, uh, yes. And you, you like that phrase, the strategy. We need to we need to learn how to avoid those pitfalls. That's right. And not to get in them. And like I said last week, take one take a thought out and replace it with another one. Or there something, you go. You know. That's exactly. We do need to develop ways to mm-hmm. to He was decisive. He was, he was decisive. decisive. Yeah. One thing I've been learning in the work because I struggle with that issue too. I was like, Lord, how do you walk with the Spirit? Because Paul also said in Romans, yeah. uh, he who is led by the Spirit is also becomes a son of God. And I was like, so how do you walk by the Spirit? And what the Lord put on my heart is, he was like, I'm giving you a new heart. You yeah. became a new creation. You can trust your heart now. You can trust yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. And you start developing this relationship with them. And then it also says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So there were decisions that I made in my life where I felt really grieved by it. Like I knew it was wrong. Yeah. And so I started avoiding those things yeah. because I would grieve the Spirit and started just following my heart and other mm-hmm. things. And when I felt good about it, you know, yeah. following the Spirit. Yeah, that's right. These are things that we, uh, this is over time. This doesn't happen 24 hours after you trust Christ. All this falls in place. It doesn't. It's that process. But um, we learn from those. And we learn, and Woody's right, last week we talked a little bit about that. We learn what is a strategy for holiness in each one of our lives. 
I really believe that, seriously. We must develop a strategy for holiness in our lives. And, and that strategy that Fred has is going to be different than Woody's, it's going to be different than Ed's, it's going to be different than Matt's, because we're different people. We have different experiences and baggage, backgrounds. But without a strategy that you're, you're going to be overrun sometimes. And the Lord is just saying, this is what Paul is, Paul is saying, if you put it another way, God's will is your sanctification. Now it's up to you to develop a strategy. Strategy number one, avoid porneia. Strategy number two, learn self-control. That's the strategy. Now you have to fill in the specifics. Because it, self-control in one area of life may not be an issue in another guy's life. It just may not be an issue. But he's got issues of the need for self-control and others of life that may not be, I hope I'm making sense. But that's what Paul is saying here. God's purpose for you, his will for your life, is you be sanctified. But it's up to you. He trusts you. He wants you to develop a strategy. Here are three things. Now, we didn't even do the third yet, but they're the first two. Okay, anybody else with me? We only got about 12 minutes, so... We better move it out here. Third, it's a little longer. Verse 6, that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. New American Standard says, um, no one transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. In what matter? Okay, it's defraud, and it seems as if he's saying defraud through sexual sin. Because in this matter, the demonstrative pronoun this is taking us back to the previous discussion. So, what does that mean? Well, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination. I mean, today it's extraordinary, it's horrific, but sex trafficking is a very extreme of that, but that's defrauding. You're lying to a young girl, or it actually even can be a young guy, young boy, and their family has, you know, like in Thailand or in Nepal, I just read of a very horrible story of a young girl in Nepal, (coughs) poverty-stricken family. This man comes into the village and promises them $250 if they let their daughter come to the next village and live. He wants her to do some cleaning and some things for him. He's gonna, she's going to be his house servant. Well, you know what he was doing. And she ended up in the, in the sex trade. I mean, that's, that's defrauding. And that went on in the ancient world. It went on in the ancient world among the poorer parts of society where people, just like it is today, where young girls or young boys or sometimes just women are, are just enslaved and sold into this. That's defrauding. So Paul is saying something, and it is, it's, 
It's very specific here, but it was an issue in the ancient world. So the third area of strategy is you don't be involved in that kind of thing. You don't defraud and exploit and oppress people. Defraud, exploit, and oppress people. Uh, yes, sir. I have the Amplified Bible. Yeah. And in this one here, it says uh, that no man trans transgress and overreach his brother and defraud him in this matter or defraud his brother in business. Now, what you talked about, the sex trafficking, that That's an example, you know. Okay, yeah, that definitely has a business dimension yes. to too, but um, it's almost like that kind of departs from the two sexual uh, examples given before. Um, but That's why I think, and this is a grammatical issue, and I, I don't usually get into that too much because it isn't really important, but the, the this... The demonstrative pronoun, this, is referring back to something. It's referring back to this sexual discussion. So it's, and we know that went on in the ancient world. And so, I mean, it's exploiting, oppressing, defrauding other human beings for what personally you'll profit from. But it is, it's, to me, I don't know how you guys, to me that's one of the most unimaginable things you could possibly do to another human being. I mean, it's just, it's, an, it's almost unimaginable. Like a young girl, a young boy. I mean, I, but it went on in the ancient world. Tragically, it goes on in 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 this world. Now, look at what he says here, because I really try, want to try to finish this. He can. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. So he had taught them about this. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects the instruction does not reject a human being, but rejects God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Amen. So I think the takeaway from those last two verses, 7 and 8 particularly, actually the, the middle of 6 through the end of 8, is God will hold these people accountable. Now, I think it would not be illegitimate, although I'm not sure that's specifically what it's addressing here because of the, this, but that would, that, would, that would address the whole issue of slavery per se. And the, the whole history of slavery and civilization is just an unimaginable horror. Take human beings who are creating God's image and defrauding, oppressive, and exploiting them for personal gain. I, was, I read a book right before Christmas that the amount of wealth created in the United States by the slave trade was in the tens of millions of dollars, and by the time of the Civil War was in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and was the basis of capitalism in the South, the wealth it created. Abraham Lincoln made the decision that is why we had the Civil War. God judged this nation for that. And if you read Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, which I think is the greatest inaugural address ever given by a president, that is exactly what he said. 
In that address, he quotes more scripture and alludes more references to God than any president ever has done in a speech, which we don't hear about things like that in the last 20 years. But now that's enough uh, about those. I was preaching again. I, I apologize. So I, what I want you to see, we still have a couple more minutes, but what I want you to see here is, and I want you to take this away today, God's will for your life is that you be sanctified. You just, somebody asks you, what's God's will for my life? Oh, I got it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, that I be sanctified. And then you could add, Ekman said 96% of God's will for my life is revealed. But don't say God said that. Say Ekman. Then everybody laugh and mock me. But the point is that a significant part of, our, of God's will for our life is really revealed. And for reasons that must apply to what was going on in Thessalonica, he chooses three specific things they need to have a strategy for. And he could have chose, I mean, he could have made a list as long as this room and not stop. But he chose those three for reasons that have something to do. But they apply to us today. Okay? Any final thoughts? I want to start this next section. Remember, I won't be here next week, but you'll be meeting with Mark, and then the 8th I'll be back, and we'll just continue. Where do you want to pick up next time, Jim? Depends on where I get in the next five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Verse 9. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact... You do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Where in the Bible does it teach us to love one another? Jesus said so. <laughs> kind of everywhere. Yeah. It's like all over the place. So it's Paul says, it's like he's saying, this is not something I need to teach you. It's like the will of God is you be sanctified, that you love one another, but you, you manifest that. And we read this at the beginning of the book over in chapter 1. Their love for believers, remember Macedonia is up in the north. You know, here's Greece, and Macedonia is up here in the north. Rugged area up there. And he said, you love them, it's, it's well known. But I urge you, dear friends, do more and more. It's exactly the same language we saw at the end of verse 1. Do this more and more. Excel in this. Don't stop. Loving each other. Don't think you've plateaued. Keep doing it. <laughs> and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your hand. <clears throat> that almost sounds like the 21st century. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your hands. Look at those three. They're applications. They're strategies. Habits of living that reflect loving others. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Um... That's exactly what the NA New American Standard says. What does that mean, a quiet life? You don't talk? Take a vow of silence? Is that what it means? Don't make any waves. <clears throat> Could be. 
I know an awful lot of Christians who make a lot of waves. Any other thoughts? What a quiet life. What does, what's, what's involved with that? What, what do you think? Make a lot of noise. <laughs> I mean, quietly, meaning, you know, no going down rumbling in the store or walking down the sidewalk and doing this and want to do that and everything. It's peaceful. Peace. Okay, kind of a a peaceful qual quality of life. It's like contentment. Okay. It does flow. That's good. It does flow from the contentment that we have. We st when we studied Philippians a couple of months ago, we saw that in chapter 4. So quiet doesn't necessarily mean silence. You're not talking. But it's a it's a demeanor of life. What what is a quiet life? Doesn't again it doesn't mean you don't talk. So what what would be some of the characteristics of a quiet life? A what, life that's contented, a life that's manifesting contentment. Maybe a little bit more private, not, not anxious, not angry. Okay, got a lot going on here. What Woody? What did you say? How did just a kind of a private life? Um, maybe not out in the in the world, so to speak. Okay, it, it could it could be you're not. If I can add, put some words in your mouth, you're not always seeking to be the center of attention. And what, what did you say, Mark? Not anxious, not angry. But but you mentioned creating waves. You know, all the disciples created a bunch of waves. So you know. That's what I mean. We it, should not we should not be isolating ourselves from the world. We right. should be the light of the world and the soul right. of the world. Right. 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 But I think the center of attention where you're being motivated to be the center of attention, that's, that's not what a Peter or John was, was doing. Somebody said, uh, yeah, please. I, I certainly associate it with contentment. You talked yeah. about that. Um, I, I think uh, we, if we're contented, we, we exude a will, uh, uh, an aura of happiness. I think other people see that. Happiness, joy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, a, a humility that characterizes our life. Again, we're not. Yeah, yeah. We're we're not seeking to draw attention to ourselves, to self elevate. That's really in back of the word we're translating quiet, which most translations translate it quiet. That doesn't mean the absence of sound, where you're not talking. It's more the quality and character, the demeanor, the dimensions. How are you presenting yourself to the world? And it's in a non-showy, non-self-elevating way that um, sometimes does create waves, but not because of what you are doing usually what you are saying. There's a scripture that says whatever you do, do, do it unto the Lord. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the Lord watching us and we're <coughs> doing it unto Him, the last thing I think that could, could be on our mind would be thinking about ourselves, but rather thinking about God. And then any accolade, I mean, the accolades really pale in comparison to the approval of God and, mm -hmm. and the strength that we can derive 
from that relationship. So it's actually like we're winning, even though on the surface it doesn't. Look it doesn't that look that way. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. In the quiet, contented life, means you mind your own business too, which is the second one. <laughs> Which is where we'll pick up. All right, let me pray. We're going to pray for you. We are. Yes. Um, uh, Woody. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for this uh, meeting today and uh, what we've tried to absorb. All of us have some, and uh, pray for Jim next week that he doesn't, that he's not tempted to hit his wife or tear tear the grandson away from her, and. Uh, <laughs> Pray for Matt's father who recently died, and there's another young man that comes in here, and his and his father is in. Uh, he's not here today, but his father is uh, up in Minnesota. You know, uh, where they take him to pass on. I forget what they call it, but uh, anyway, we just thank you, Father God, and pray that you will give us the strength to and the willingness to continue learning. And, um, and that's all. Amen. 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 Amen.